The following is brought to you by Total Seal Piston Rings, the leader in ring seal technology. TotalSeal.com Hello and welcome to Hidden Horsepower on Total Seal Piston Rings, Facebook, YouTube, and social channels. My name is Joe Costello, and we've got a great episode for you today. Let's bring on our guests. Of course, everybody knows Mr. Lake Speed Jr. Lake, a uh, it's not live, we're recording, but it is a right. video edition. Some of these are audio shows, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, for people that are driving over the road. This one, though, we've got a little multimedia experience. We've got a couple of guests that you have been yeah. working on a few things uh, together. So we decided we're going to devote a little time, just about an hour, to a video production for uh, everybody wants to sit and watch and learn. This is going to be really cool. Well, when you have Billy and Ben, and we have all of this testing experience, the video version tends to be pretty good because we can show some of the things we're talking about. Now, for those who are just listening audio-wise, we will definitely try to explain what we're showing. That way you can still get some benefit of it. But uh, the pictures are going to be pretty cool. So maybe if you are really interested later on, go back and watch it on YouTube or something later. That'd be fun. Yeah. Or, or vice versa. Maybe you're watching on YouTube, but you got to go. And that's why you subscribe to the Apple podcast or Spotify or SoundCloud. And really a good reason to follow all the different social media channels that total seal piston rings has, especially YouTube. I know so many people that they, you know, they listen to YouTube while it's playing in their pocket. They got to come in through their car speakers. Uh, let's bring on our guests. Right, Mr. Yeah. Ben Strader, he's become a regular, Mr. EFI University. He's out there somewhere and freshly get in the middle of the screen, guys. You're yeah. you're monitoring yourselves. And Billy Godbold, who has been on in the past, is joining us once again. Hello, Billy. Hello, Ben. Welcome. Hey, guys. How are you guys? Hey, good to be on. Um, I'm doing fantastic. Great to be here, guys. Excellent. From what I understand, Ben is like fresh back from vacation lake. So he's going to be bringing it today. Oh, yep. Absolutely. Ready to be back to the back to the grind. Back to the grind. The last time I saw Lake, it was in Piney Flats, Tennessee, just uh, before the Bristol NHRA Thunder Valley Nationals. We had the big honing class, Lake. You want to summarize that real quick before we move forward in the world of ring seal and all the things we got going on? I'll tell you that I was very impressed. I took in the whole class. And uh, what surprised me the most was you had people from all over the country who flew in, mm -hmm. taken the class, and they were engaged every second of the deal, which is not always the case. Oh, it was incredible, Joe. Like you said, the people were super engaged. The, the class started at 8 in the morning with these kind of introductions, look around the shop, have a little bit of breakfast, then kick off at 9, and it's going to go to 5 o'clock. We were still there at 8.30 before we people were finally done because we – they were so engaged in what we were doing that we went beyond just, we obviously we started off in the morning when we did you know, a couple hours in the, in the classroom, uh, going through the lectures and stuff. And we were very fortunate uh, that our buddy, Dr. Mar Marburg, who's been on Hidden Horsepower a couple of times now, came down from Indiana and donated his time and really gave a deep dive on surface finish and understanding the numbers and what metrology is all about. And we're actually going to cover some more stuff later today uh, that relates to his his work on surface finish. Actually, not on a piston ring because hidden horsepower isn't just about piston rings. You know, I love piston rings, but there's more to it than just piston rings. Especially when we got Billy around, we're going to talk camshafts. 
it's going to, it's going to happen. Right. So, but we really went through the surface finish part of everything with, with Mark and then Scott Rowe from Roller was there and we really talked about honing, but then we went back in hands-on honing class. Guess what? We had a block and we spent hours going through demonstration on honing, but then it was kind of fun. We took one of my dad's old blocks, which we have an ongoing project we're working with and we needed, had a little problem we needed to fix. And we said, all right, who wants to hang around while we fix this? Cause we're going to fix it. And pretty much everyone, but two people that had to go catch a plane to go back home stayed and they stayed until we finished it. You know, and the one comment I heard over and over again was, man, that was so cool because that was real world. And we started off in the morning with the lecture talking about things in theory. Then we moved to that hands-on experience of honing the, the school block and working through the things. But then we put all of it into practice. And we had a real block with a real customer with a real time frame, And we had to make it happen. And that was the best part of the whole thing is it all came together. And we were exhausted after that, but it was fantastic. Excellent. No, it was great stuff. And just seeing so many people that were engaged in, and into it, like you say, like they were, they were not at a school. They knew that they were getting something uh, positive out of it. All right. Well, we tried to give them the real EFI university experience. I've been to enough of Ben's classes that that's what it's like. When you go to Ben's, that's what you're going to get. You're going to get the lecture. You're going to get the theory. You're going to get to do it yourself. But then in the end, it's going to be something real. You're going you're going to do it. It's not just hearing it. You got to do it, get your hands on it. And that's how you learn. And so uh, I've learned a lot from our, my good buddy, Ben. So we, we tried to do our best to give him the full Ben Strader experience in the Ben wasn't there. I'm honored that you uh, took my took my uh, lead by example spirit. I got to share real quick my favorite all time story of classes that we did a few years back. I had one of my competition engine development classes, and it was exactly like what you were just saying. Like, so I had these four students that um, came to the class, and as it turned out, um, because of a delay in shipping, this was in 2020 during all like the weird COVID stuff, and everything. Um, I had been waiting on the engine for our uh, race team with Robbie Blankenship, our, our small block Ford program to show up and it was delayed. And um, it was really a time crunch. Like it was one of those things where class was Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And I was hoping to have, you know, the engine the week before and it didn't show up. So anyway, um, a couple of the students in the class knew about our race program and had been watching. And as it turns out, the engine ends up showing up on the last day of the class. You know, the, the guy shows up and says, you got a forklift and whatever. And so, the way the time was, I was like, man, as soon as class is over, I'm going to have to stay late and kind of do some work tonight. And one of the guys in the class said, well, would you mind if I like looked over your shoulder? And so, of course, that was like, well, if he stays, can I stay? And so all four of the students end up saying like, well, would you mind? I'm like, all right, look, guys, you can stick around and you can watch. But like, to be fair, class is over. And like now I have to do my job and like work. So I might have to stay a couple hours. Well, as it worked out, we get this thing out of the crate. It was uh, we went we ended the class at five went and got something to eat. 7 p.m. We get the thing out of the crate. We stripped the whole entire engine down, put the block in the Rottler hone, honed it, and had it all the way back together by 6 a.m. the next morning. And like Robbie calls me to say, hey, you know, did the engine show up? I'm like, yeah, dude, it's going back in the crate. It's ready to come back to you. And he was like, what? Like, what are you talking about? I'm like, yeah, we, we stayed up 24 hours straight with these guys in the class. So now the greatest part of the story, though, is 
I had to get there. He gets it in the car. I get on an airplane. I go meet up with him in Michigan to do this race. Well, um, one of the guys in that class, Matt Wire, lived in Ohio, and he said, I never in a million years thought that I would get to see inside of one of the engines that at this level. And now, like, I got to touch it and help you work on it and help put it together. And it was so great experience. Well, he ends up bringing his family to the racetrack that weekend to see this engine. And lo and behold, we win the race. (laughs) (laughs) All the four students in the class, I got goosebumps just thinking about it, right? Like it was such an amazing experience to get to share with those students. And we've become lifelong friends. And, you know, that's, um, by the way, that's, uh, you know, um, uh, Angelina, who was at your hunting class. Mm -hmm. She was one of those students, Chrissy Askus, Matt, Matt Wire. So, dude, it was amazing to have that learning experience and show them real world. But then like proof is in the pudding and we go out and win the race. There were we're they're fans for life, you know what I mean? Yeah, right. That's cool. Yeah, so that's awesome. It's my favorite uh story of all my years of training. Well, you're hands-on, you get the experience, you're part of the experience, and you carry that. I'm sure they're telling that story over and over again to their uh you know people that they're passing the knowledge to. So, Lake, take it away. Obviously, you guys you're gonna get Billy involved and you're gonna talk some things and uh reference what you want up on the screen, and I will try to add a funny quip every once in a while because that's why I'm here. Ah, it's fantastic. Thanks, Joe. So a few months back, me and Billy happened to be out in Lincoln. Actually, we were in Kearney, Nebraska. We stopped in Lincoln on the way at the American Museum of Speed. If you haven't seen the video that we did with Mitchell Stapleton on that amazing museum, go watch it on YouTube later. Not now, just go later, go to YouTube and uh, look it up. It's fantastic. But we were stopped in Lincoln because we were on the way to Kearney, Nebraska for an AERA event at Blueprint Engine. So Norris Marshall and those guys out there doing an incredible job. Your idea of what your impression of Kearney, Nebraska and what is they're doing at Blueprint Engines, I guarantee you doesn't add up unless you've actually been there. It's an amazing facility, incredible work they're doing out there at Blueprint Engines. And they had an ARA event there to kind of, you know, help the industry. And ARA is always trying to do educational things just like we do here on Hidden Horsepower. And Billy was giving a, a talk a, about the evolution of pro stock. You know, what, what have we learned in 20 years ago? Like, I think the idea was like, what would you tell yourself mm-hmm. 20 years ago, right? Or 20, future self would tell yourself, hey, here's the things you need to be working on, right? <laughs> and but one of the things he mentioned in that talk was the fallacy of ABA testing. Because right, <laughs> I know we are touching the third rail. We are, we are saying blasphemous things. I mean, this is that, sacred text, okay? You know, oh, 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 yeah. You know, we, we are throwing down the tablets now, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when we're doing this, that ABA testing can lie to you and more than likely does lie to you so billy (laughs) i'm gonna hand it to you now (laughs) no i mean it's funny that you bring that up because um you know where i started in that presentation is um you know basically comes back from the museum you know as we were we were walking around the museum we saw one of garlic's cars and it had heads by mondello down the side Mm -hmm. of the car and it was kind of awesome and then I was realizing, okay, tomorrow I'm going to talk about something that Joe Mondello did wrong. So, I mean, and Joe Mondello, just one of the absolute treasures of our industry, one of the smartest, best guys I ever met. Um, 
But when it came to his Oldsmobile engines, well, he always ran, you know, a 11.30 seconds push rod, you know. So he was always running the small push rods in his engines. And I'm like, you know, we were at a, we were at a, um old ATC conference. And, you know, Joe goes, well, I've never broken a push rod. And I'm, you know, I'm like 25 years old. I'm standing up on the podium and it's like, well, Joe, have you ever broken anything else? And he's like, well, yes. So, well, Joe, let me explain this as simple as I can. If a push rod fails, it probably wasn't the push rod's fault. You know, something probably stopped the valve from moving or stopped the rocker from rocking. Something else happened and the push rod just took the blunt and it blew like a fuse. But when anything else in the valve train breaks, it could be the push rod's fault. And what goes on is that push rods, they're got one on my desk. Push rods are extremely, extremely stiff in compression. You know, whether they're a half inch like this guy or whether they're they're you know seven sixteenths, three eighths, eleven thirty seconds, whatever size they are, you know, on five sixteenths, they're they're gonna bend, you know, based on, you know, they're gonna bend, not compress. Well, when they bend, that deflection robs the engine of duration, but it also makes the valve train faster than it would be. You know, so you get you get a valve train that squeezes in the bottom and kind of pulls the top up. So he's using these small push rods, these five sixteenths push rods, you know, and he's saying they don't fail, Billy. Whenever he put a three eighths or or a seven sixteenths push rod in his engine it would make less power. And what didn't work in Joe's mind is that, hey, the camshaft that he had evolved to, the camshafts that he was running were the right size duration-wise for the push rod for his flexible valve train system. When he stiffened up his valve train, now his camshafts were way too big. Not only were they way too big on the seat, they also weren't lofting like they were the old, the small push rods like a pole vault. Well, you know, and some guys go, hey, okay, well, you know, that pole vaulting, that's not all bad. You say it squeezes the bottom, makes more on top. That's good, right? Well, the problem is, is that it, your camshaft, your valve durations are always variable. You, know, you start out with a really big camshaft at low RPM. And as the RPM goes higher and higher, the loads go higher and higher. These things bend and the camshaft gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, you know, and that's the exact opposite of what you want. You really want to start with a small camshaft and end up with a big camshaft. So that's kind of the thing that because Joe would do the testing that he knew how to do, which was to take one piece out, A out, stick B in, then come back to A, and then you look at the dinos and whichever one's better is the better part. Well, you know, I can tell you today that you couldn't win a race with those, you know, 10 inch long, you know, five sixteenths push rods. There's just no way. Nothing, you know, nothing in, is going to, to would have worked there. So, um, yeah, that's kind of one of those sacred cows, though. People don't understand that these engines today are so developed that when you change one part and don't re-optimize, you're out in left field. So we like to say that the engine's a series of dependent events, right? Any any one part that you change has an effect on way many other parts than just the thing you changed. And so, I mean, we're all guilty of it. We've, we've for years talked about ABA type of testing, 
But I think the the um, intention was in doing ABA or talking about ABA was to make sure that you were trusting that you collected good data. The problem came in with the way we thought about and analyzed the data that we got. Instead of saying like like Billy's pointing out, well, that part wasn't didn't make more power, so that part wasn't better. It may just be that that part didn't fit into your system of interconnected and dependent events, and it made some other parts mad, like you talked about. Now my camshaft's too big. Well, that doesn't mean the push rod was bad. It was just not an, a, a good, you know, uh, member of society. It wasn't a good part of that system. Well, it's really about you're saying is that it's a system. Like you can have <laughs> system A, system B, system mm -hmm. A. Well, that's that's fair. Mm -hmm. But individual parts will totally, you know, lie to you or not tell you the whole truth. I, I think about the engine project we've been working on with with dad's piece taking that old ford c3 engine and bringing it back to life one of the recent tests we did because we got so many questions about the first one where it picked up you know 300 horsepower because it was hurt so it was way down so when it comes back up we're like well what part of that was the valve train what part of that was the pistons or the rings or this or that well, you really can't break out, like Billy said, one component and say, well, what's one component worth? It, 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 you, it won't work that way. But we did say, okay, well, let's look at that piston ring cylinder system. So we did just take one engine and left the valve train alone and just did hone, rings, pistons. Well, just that system of going from a full round piston old school 400 grit, you know, single finish with a 043 ductile molly top ring, one five second, three millimeter oil, made that change to a, you know, side release style piston, modern plateau home, 0.7.72 millimeter steel ring set. Well, that picked up 40 horsepower yeah. as a system. Right. And you know, and, real with rings because people always talk about that, you know, um, yeah, I, I love the guys that do the Engine Master show, but they like mm -hmm. the ABA stuff because that's kind of how you did things back in the day. And they'll do like an ABA on a ring, and it's like, guys, that doesn't work. You know, you can't yeah. take a piston and put one size ring in the other size ring and not change how you hone it and, you know, not change like, say if you have a, a really small ring that's designed, a really thin small ring that's designed to run with the dry sump with vacuum in the pan, and then you try to run it in a motor that doesn't have pan back and, and you're like, Oh, it doesn't seal. Well, duh, you know, it's not, you know, that's, you know, and, and I don't mean to be mean to it because these guys, no one's doing something wrong to you. They've just been told over year after year after year, the way you evaluate components is you change one component, you make a test, you change one component, you make a test. And right. um, I mean, and there's a, there's a level that that will get you to that's not terribly bad. But once you try to get past that level, you've got to stop. Um, you know, when you looked at back in the day when Toyota came into NASCAR, they started talking about their engines and generations. You know, and then, you know, of course, clearly, you know, the, the Chrysler did it too with their stuff. You know, you saw the... R7, V8, and all that kind of stuff. And yep. basically what they're talking about is it's generation this and, you know, iteration this. You know, so you saw that going all through. 
And when that mindset came is when engines took a huge step forward because these guys understood that there was only a few things they could do. You know, you've either got to increase the volumetric efficiency, how well the engine's feeling, or you have to increase the brake, improve the brake specific, which means either reducing friction or increasing combustion efficiency. So either the efficiency change or airflow change, nothing else was going to make more power. So when they started looking at component, they would take the next phase of engine would be a totally new engine. And it took what they learned from the first stage and it moved it up and it said, what, what can we do that could make this engine better? And then it re-optimized over that motor and the motor they were taking the racetrack didn't change. You know, they worked on this motor and it was this, this iteration. This is your race motor. And then they had a development motor with some new parts in it. The development motor, they kept working on it until it was better and more durable than the race motor. Then this development motor becomes the race motor. And you start all over with another development idea. So it's not where you're changing components on a race motor. It's where you have your race motor that you build by the book, the same way over and over again. Then you have your development motor where you try new ideas and then rub on them and optimize them. And if you don't do that, you get locked into this thing that's, you know, that's just unyielding. You know, well, Billy, yeah. there's opportunities where some of that ABA testing might make sense. You know, for example, if you had a specific package within a set of rules, I got to run this manifold and this header and whatever, then my system is kind of set for me. But let's say, you know, where you and I have done Spintron work and we've got a family or a series of load profiles that produce, you know, valve motion that we like. Well, then we might want to test a few camshaft durations or, or center lines against each other. You know, and that might be a place where I could say, put this one in. Okay, now put that one in. But most of the time, if we're not locked into that system, we need to be thinking about, okay, I put this in and the result was X. It was better or worse, but why? What else got better or worse because of this part? And I think that's the more systems-minded approach that seems to be producing much better long-term results these days than just a parts approach. Right, but even those guys who who... And even the ABA guys knew a little bit, right? Because if you do an engine masters, at least when they change parts, hopefully they'll reset the air fuel, you know, try to get mm -hmm. it back. And then they'll do a little bit of a timing sweep. So they get that on your app, your idea, like on a, um, I'll say a, some sort of lift rule motor, you have to, or crate motor, you have to run this valve spring. Well, maybe you could run this valve spring in a couple of different um, installed heights. Maybe you could run that, that a different couple of different push rod lengths to change the rocker sweep. There's still things that when you make a change, be really careful that you re-optimize because there's a chance that you've rubbed on your old system. You know, you have run your old system with all kinds of different air fuel. You've run your old system with all kinds of different timing. You run your old system with different installed heights. You run your old system with different push rod lengths. And all of a sudden, you've kind of gotten that thing happy. And there's a good chance that if the new part does a couple things, well, it's just not rubbed on like the old part was. Well, you know, it makes me think, Billy, uh, when we were playing uh, with the in-cylinder combustion stuff at Ben's last time with mm -hmm. and on exhaust and how much the exhaust impacts the intake. Like so much more than you would you would think, right? You're thinking exhaust is exhaust, and they're not really talking to each other. And you're like, oh nope, they talk to each other 
a lot. And that if you could very easily be trying something ABA on exhaust, and if you're not re-optimizing your airflow and making sure your, your, your fuel jetting, whatever you've got, isn't dialed back in, you could easily fool yourself, you know, or say miss something on that. Yeah, one one year is I'm laughing because it was probably six, eight, ten years ago that Kazi took and um he wasn't sure what this exhaust closing was doing and he thought maybe hey I'm pulling a lot of intake charge out the exhaust during overlap because my exhaust system is pretty good and it's just sucking in this intake through. And yeah, it kind of does that. So what he did was he closed the exhaust like 20 degrees earlier. Well, on one of his Mount Motor Pro Stocks, it lost 300 horsepower. <laughs> not three horsepower, not 30 horsepower, 300 horsepower. And he calls me up. He goes, Billy, I lost 300 horsepower. I'm like, yeah, John, you just took your 120% volumetric efficiency engine and made it to 100 because the exhaust system can't talk to the intake anymore. You know, it can't rob it, but it can't even talk to it anymore. You know, and so that exhaust pulse, like you're talking about, when you open that exhaust valve, you've got 10 bar plus of pressure. So it's just, boom, coming out of there. It hits the opening. It reflects back as a negative wave. When that negative wave gets there, does it let some of the, the intake flow through? Absolutely. But it's going, come on, guys. Come on. Come on over here. And it builds up all this momentum, which makes the makes the cylinder feel so much better. I mean, if you think about the piston isn't driving that pressure differential to 70 degrees after TDC. That's when you have peak piston velocity, 70 degrees after. You're opening the intake, what, 50 plus degrees before. You've just given yourself 120 degrees more duration if you can make these things talk to each other. So basically, wow. you've got a 30% increase in the time to fill the cylinder. Well, if you open the intake valve, but there's nobody going, hey, guys, come on, come on, come on. You know, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't do anything. You know, it reminds me of when I was a kid, I used to duck hunt. You do the 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 hell call for the duck, you know, and you're sitting there quacking, <laughs> and you're basically the duck saying, hey, guys, we got stuff. Hey, come on over. Come on, you know, you know, do a feeding call, tell them, hey, we got food. You know what I mean? And then they come the ducks will just come on in, you know, the same thing with the air. If you can get that exhaust to, you need that exhaust to yell back at that intake and say, guys, come on over here. This is fun. So duck call exhaust, Joe, that's a new thing. We, well, we're yeah, going to yeah, put a yeah. in there and try to make one really quack when it, you know. <laughs> that exhaust is quacking. That's, that's yeah. the good one right there. It quacks. Yeah, that one is good. Huh. I don't do duck calls, guys. I normally I would jump in here, but I don't have any. But no, the, the no thing is, and Ben and I were talking about this. You know, you know, people who look at the four strokes of an engine, people who study cylinder pressure and cam timing, you know, they'll tell you that you know, exhaust valve opening is kind of a Peter DePaul type setup. You know, if you open the exhaust too late, you get all this residual exhaust in the chamber has to be pushed out by the, by the exhaust valve. I mean, by the piston. So you have to do work to push the exhaust out. It's not, it's not that it doesn't scavenge enough. It's that it actually creates work on the top of the piston to push it out. Well, but if you open the exhaust valve too early, you're robbing yourself from the power stroke as the exhaust is pushing down on the piston. You know, you're taking away this force down. 
because now it's going out the exhaust valve. Well, that part of the pumping loop, if you look, it looks like a figure eight. The bottom part of that figure eight is the pumping loop. That's the exhaust at the bottom pushing out. Well, normally think open the exhaust earlier and earlier and earlier is just about making that pumping loop small. But what Ben and I have seen several times is it's not just making that pumping loop small. That exhaust opening event has to do with the header length or when it gets back. So it's when you get that boom, when it goes and opens the exhaust valve, that wave goes out the exhaust pipe, it reflects back. If the header is too long, you're going to need that exhaust valve opening earlier so that it's timed right getting back. It's one of those things I remember really not all that long ago, Billy, a, a, a month or so ago even, like it hasn't been that long. I remember sending you a message going, you know, after looking at all this combustion data and really understanding a better picture of what's happening with the camshaft, you know, I've been doing Spintron for a few years, been looking at combustion analysis, and I feel like I've spent way too much of my whole entire career discounting just how important the exhaust valve opening point was. Because for exactly what you said, we've always been told it's a wash. If you open a little early, it does this, and but you pay for it over there. And if you open a little late, it does this, but then you pay for that. And so I'll be honest, I just kind of went, eh, yeah, it's not really that important. And we just sort of eh, throw, throw one over there, you know. But mm -hmm. the last year or so, or two years, I guess, of really starting to open the peel the layers of the onion man, there are certain combinations I think that can be lazy and somewhat insensitive to it. But then there's these other ones, like with these supercharged engines we've been working on, man, you can't miss. It will cost you big time. So <laughs> it's it's really sort of humbling to think that, I mean, I was always a mid-level engine builder anyway. It's not, I don't consider myself one of the, the greats or anything, but the reality is you think, man, I've done a lot of stuff, worked on a lot of engines, but I'm still pretty dumb. And when you get real data and you see what's going on, you look back and go, how foolish that was of me to think that that anything really, but that specifically didn't matter. I almost feel like I was just being lazy. I wasn't looking hard enough, you know, and you can't, now that you've seen it, you can't go back. You can't unsee that data and understand that it really, really matters. Every, every single part of the engine matters, but boy, those four camshaft events matter a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ben, it's like, you know, back to the pilot stuff. It's like getting the, on the wrong trajectory. If, yeah. if you open that val exhaust valve at the wrong time, it's like having the wrong heading. Yep. Yeah. You know, if you're, you're you, heading that way for a while. We say that all the time. You know what I mean? Like if you leave LA in a jet and your heading's wrong by, you know, three degrees, it's not really a problem if you're going to San Diego. But if you're going to New York, instead of ending up in New York, you're going to end up in like Washington, D.C. You know what <laughs> I mean? So the farther away from, from good you get, the more those little details matter. Yeah, and you there, see yeah. the guys, if you look at the guys like a Ron Shavers on the sprint car guys, you'll see how many, you know, header combinations that like Andy Durham or Ron Shaver will have because they're very easy to change on the car. They're right out there and they're trying to get all this, 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 the way these cars explode out of the corner. They're playing with it a whole lot. Then you look at some of the, the dragster setup and they'll run a, a big soft exhaust and, you know, with that slow exhaust opening, they don't care as much because you're not creating that sharp waveform. And it's probably only been the last 10 years in pro stock and drag racing where you've really seen people in the, um, you know, start using that exhaust valve opening and tuning around it. And then they get much more sensitive to headers. When you open the exhaust fast, like in pro stock, they open it very fast. But if you're wrong on the header, it's going to be a dog. So you've got to redesign the header around it. 
Then you get some of these road race categories and circle track categories. Some of them are hard to change headers on. So, you know, what do you do there? I mean, I don't know. You know, it, you know, do you spend enough time to try to figure out ways? Okay, what what different headers will do, knowing there may not be a ton that you can package. Well, it's one of those things that well, that's exactly what we're talking about. When you say, well, I changed to this new cam lobe and the engine didn't like it, so that cam lobe's not good. And you go, well, but wait a minute. The, the rate that that exhaust valve is opening is shaping the, the wave, how fast and how strong that pressure is. So now all of a sudden your, your header length and your collector matters way more than it used to. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't that the camshaft was bad. It just wasn't a good fit for the system. I love the, have you seen the burn stainless, uh, like the adjustable co collector deal mm -hmm. they make? Yeah. So when you're on the dyno, you can you can play with this stuff and mess around. And I think that's a really underutilized tool for a lot of engine shops that could be, you know, uh, honestly, like I said, all those years, I sort of said, eh, that doesn't matter that much. But you can't look at the data and then walk away from it thinking that it doesn't matter, right? You can't go back. You can't unsee it. Yeah. Absolutely. Joe, you had a picture there a minute ago of that. Pressure loop, you want to bring that back up real quick? Yeah, I'm going to try, and I obviously apologize to everyone if it skips a little bit, but it seems to you know work when it wants to. But you'll get the gist. Uh, ben, walk us through as it comes Well, it shows on. those two, figure, at figure eight, right? And it's a yeah. very skewed figure eight, but Ben, you can take it from here, here we go. if it comes up. Well, yeah, either one, Billy, you're you're pretty good at it too, obviously, but uh, hopefully it'll show up here in a second. We got the, you talked about the pressure loops. And so over to the bottom right there, what you see is, the pressure against the volume in the combustion chamber that we're measuring. So across the bottom is the volume of the cylinder and then going up the Y axis would be pressure. So you see these, basically these two loops, the big fat one that's going at a, like a 45 degree angle there, that's the work loop. So from the right side of the graph, when you're at bottom dead center, going towards the left side, it goes up on this angle. That's a function of your compression ratio. So now your, your pistons doing a bunch of work to compress all that air and fuel. You get up there near the near the top of that over on the left hand side where our volume's getting small near top dead center and then the spark plug lights and so you get this big release of heat energy and it goes around the corner there and now you have that slope going down from the expansion where now your gases are putting work back into the piston so that the area inside that whole loop there is that's when the work is getting done right yeah between the green line and the blue line that oval shape you know yep. tilted oval right there that that's the work on the piston. Yep. So the problem is there's no free lunch. And so when you get so done with all that, then you have to look at that skinnier one on the bottom. And that's, you know, after that exhaust valve opens over there towards the right side, we're getting near bottom dead center there. Yeah, on the blue so line. The blue line across the top. So the air is expanding. And then we open the exhaust valve. And then what happens is the pressure drops. We get to bottom dead center. Now we got to push it all out. So the, the piston's going you know, top to bottom is really displayed across the bottom of the, the chart there. It's it's basically volume. So at the right side of the chart, we have really large volume with the piston at the bottom. And at the left side of the chart, what you have is really small volume with the piston at the top. But depending on which part of the engine cycle you're on, you'll either have, you know, the smaller loop there, the bottom one, or the bigger loop, the top one, if you're at TDC compression or TDC, you know, exhaust. Um, and, and you can see that bottom loop grow right now as RPM that's right. goes up. And that's so, because you're doing more work to get that exhaust out as it goes. So, Joe, if you scroll back to the left side there, our RPM is low there. We're at 5,200. And you'll notice that the area between the, the bottom loop, the line across where we're pushing the air out, and then when we're drawing it back in on the intake, those are pretty close together. 
But as you go higher and higher in the RPMs, you'll see that that bottom loop gets fatter and fatter. So notice as you scroll across there, the, um, the top loop isn't changing a whole bunch, but the bottom loop actually is. So, you know, think about what's happening there. The higher the RPM goes, the more effort it's going to take to empty the exhaust into that same size header tube more times, right? 7,500 RPMs versus 5,200 RPMs. You're trying to push that into there. Well, if the exhaust tube, if we were really lucky and we had a vacuum cleaner on the end of the collector where we could just suck all that exhaust out, then that pressure would be really low there. It would be really great if I could drive around with a vacuum cleaner on the end of my tailpipe and it would make that loop really small. Well, that's exactly what we're trying to do when we design the length, the diameter, and the taper of the collector there, the, the header tube length and the taper of the collector. The, Billy keeps talking about these waves. So this high pressure wave goes down there and when it gets to that collector, it changes direction, it reverses, and it goes from being high pressure to low pressure and it goes back the other direction. So we're trying to time these events so that this vacuum cleaner, this low pressure area gets back to the exhaust valve right at the same time as it was opening so that it helps get all that other stuff out of the chamber and helps convince that air that's waiting on the intake valve side to start coming in. The problem with the air on the intake side is it's like a lazy teenager. <laughs> valve and it's sitting there going, nah, I don't really want to, you know? And so you got to do something to motivate them to get off the couch and get into the living room, in our case, the combustion chamber, so that vacuum cleaner, the low pressure area that we're, we're artificially creating with the header is what's getting our teenager off the couch early and getting them to come into the combustion chamber. Did I do a good job on that, Billy? No, and it, you're absolutely right. And it, it's funny yeah. because it's not the only lazy teenager in the engine. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, that, <laughs> that, intake, that intake valve is sitting there. And when you push on it, you know, it's like it's like sitting there going, OK, a little bit. Just me a little time, Dad. I, I'll come on out. But, you know that it doesn't want to move either. So there's so much of this stuff that we're telling it to do. We're telling these things, the engine to do something. And there's just a lag from when you tell them to do it, when you do it, you know, so you know get push pretty hard. A really great example of that would be the exhaust valve opening. Joe, can you go mm -hmm. back real quick to our, to our little video screenshot there? You don't even have to move it so much now. Um, One moment, please. Pardon our interruption. Well, technical. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about, you know, you start talking about 140 PSI plus, you yeah. know, and you've got two square inches, you know, we've got, you know, um, one and a half square inches, you know, that that's serious, right? Well, you know, if you're like the big Sorceress ProMod engine, another thing's got a two inch diameter intake valve. So oh, yeah. you get six square inches. Yeah. So when we look at that, that loop up on the top, that big work loop, right? So mm -hmm. down towards the bottom right. So what we're looking at is the slope of that pressure pretty much follows along that blue line, which is a, a mathematically calculated line that we should see. Mm -hmm. And if you just changed the pressure and volume equally all the way to bottom dead center, it would follow that line. But you notice before it gets to bottom dead center, the actual measured pressure drops below the line. Well, that's because the exhaust valve is now open. But the thing is, if you were to plot up here, which we can do here, but you don't have on your screen there. If you plot it on there, let's say you just made an X marks the spot at the point that the camshaft was telling the exhaust valve to open, you mm -hmm. would often see five, eight, 10, 12, even 20 degrees of crankshaft movement from the point when the cam told the valve to open to when it actually did. When we can actually see the flow departure and that's because of the bending in the system. You think about like a top fuel car yep. and you got, 50 bar, you know, you're talking about uh, five or 600 PSI of pressure. And then you got a 
six square inches of area, you might have three or 4,000 pounds of force that's trying to keep that exhaust valve closed. So that means the exhaust valve doesn't want to open, the push rod doesn't want to stay straight, it wants to bend, the rock arm wants to flex, so on and so forth. No, it's been, it's hilarious because if you look at, this is an exponential line, so it looks like it's going down linear, but that's exponential. So, you know, when you go up just a little bit on that line, you can easily be doubling, tripling, quadrupling the pressure. Um, you know, people don't get this, but like if you take an NHRA pro stock motor, it actually opens the exhaust valve before the exhaust valve on a 14,000 horsepower NHRA top fuel does. And it'd be funny if you, you, you could go call up Austin Coyle, he'd tell you, well, the reason we don't open the exhaust earlier is because we can't. can't. Right. Yeah. Yeah, if you tried to open that exhaust valve 10 degrees earlier, it would probably just pull the studs right out there holding the rocker arm or break it or break the lifter or something would give. You just get, that's how you stress test, you know, what part in your valve train breaks first. Just try to open the exhaust 20 degrees, 10, 20 degrees earlier on the NHRA top fuel motor. And it so, will so kill I used to, I used to hang out with uh, Dale Armstrong before he passed away. You know, and he would tell me stories about that, specifically that. He said, you know, we wanted to open the exhaust valve earlier. And so we kept trying to move it earlier. And the darn thing would bend the push rod. So we just put a bigger push rod in it. And then it would want to break the rocker arm. So we just put a bigger rocker arm. And then it'd pull the bolts off the cylinder head that were holding the rocker arm down. So we'd put bigger ones in. And yep. eventually we realized there's so much pressure in the cylinder. You just can't make the exhaust valve open any earlier than what we were doing. And so they didn't have like fancy combustion graphs like we have to look at. They just knew that, man, something's trying to make that valve not open. And so uh, we're just going to put bigger parts on until it does. And eventually you just can't put big enough stuff on it. You know, Did um, you say but, that there's 500 PSI of cylinder pressure when they try to open the valve? Or is it more than that? Or um, so, so I can't tell you what it is because I don't have actual data from a top fuel car, but it's pretty close at 90 after top dead center. It's pretty close to the same pressure they have at top dead center. That's, that's the big difference between a top fuel mm -hmm. car and like say a pro stalker is that nitromethane, the way that it burns so slow. So slow. It doesn't ever stop losing pressure, right? Whereas in a, in a, in a pro stock car, you'll, you might see, you know, let's just say that thing sees 2000 PSI or something like that, but for like three or four degrees across the crank rotation, then it immediately starts going down like a rock. Whereas the top fuel car might not see tons more. You might think, oh, they make 5,000 PSI or something. They really don't. It just never stops making that cylinder pressure. So it doesn't drop mm. the same way. So by the time you get 80 or 90 or 100 degrees after top dead center, you're still pretty close to what you had near top dead center. Right, so I don't know the exact number. Right across and then comes over, starts coming over way later. Yeah, so I can't tell you the exact numbers because I haven't measured that lake. Um, but I would not be surprised at all if it was 500 or more PSI in there with, with the exhaust valve. Training. No, and there's things like, you know, trying to figure out what was going on because they didn't have a, a data. There was some insulator pressure gauges that would probably work for top fuel but when austin was there there wasn't the data acquisition systems couldn't handle all the noise in a top fuel car but so what he did was put a stop on the on the exhaust valve and then turn the cam with a torque wrench and our breaker bar and put the load on the push rod that it took like they were talking about making the push rod bigger and bigger and it's still rubbing the head so they go ahead and load the camshaft and try to figure out how much push rod force does it take for the push rod to bend enough to rub on the cylinder head. And that was his version of a poor man's in cylinder pressure testing to see what was going on. That's pretty crazy.
Yeah. So, so Reinhardt, just, no, Reinhardt at the last uh, NHRA Nitro School at Bristol said he had heard numbers that was about a thousand PSI when they are trying to open it. So I was just about to tell you that. So if you just did some easy math, right? It, even if they had, let's say 240 or 250 bar of, well, let's say between 35, 3,600 PSI at TDC or, or after TDC, by the time you got to like 90 to 100 degrees after top dead center, even if you only had 30% of that value left, you'd still have over a thousand PSI of cylinder pressure on a top fuel car. Yep. That's Ooh. even if you only had 30% left. And I bet you it's got more than that. Yep. Wow. That's crazy. No, yeah. and that's what that's what they're doing. You know, and the thing is, when I started measuring some of the camshafts that came out of top fuel, I was looking at where on the EVO where the divot was. And what happens is as you try to open, it puts a divot in the flank of the camshaft. You know, it actually, as the cam gets thing, it puts a... Crushing the cam. Yeah, it crushes the cam on the opening ramp until it breaks. And, you know, and I'm looking at this place where it's crushing the camshaft. And, you know, it's kind of like walking out on a PGA course and, you know, seeing where the divots were where they made their second shot. You know, these things had divots not right there at the valve opening, but the valve's supposed to be open a hundred thousandths. There's still a divot there. So you had a hundred thousandths bend in the system before it ever broke pressure. The hard part about that then is that whole thing is now a diving board, right? Like yes. you just deflected. Once you, a, once you just like when you pull back a dry firing a boat, right? You yeah. Know, when you pull it back, if you let go of the string, you know, it snaps and it hurts the bow. Same exact thing with the valve train. You know, it snaps back. Every time it's loaded. Yeah, it's crazy. And Joe, just like that, 45 minutes is gone. How about yeah, that? I right. But uh, to your point, uh, Lake, you were out at the Thunder Valley Nationals and you did a nitro school. And it was kind of exactly this in that, you know, the difference between a NA gasoline engine, like you might find mm -hmm. in Hartford's car versus these nitro engines. And I, I don't want to say I'm desensitized because I'm not. I, I'm amazed by them. But like all these different extra layers that Ben and Billy keep bringing up, it's, it seems to me like, the, you know, the, the nitro is the real test of any engine system, right? Like if you can do it with nitromethane, and they are uh, to amazing success, by the way, um, everything seems easier after that. Is that accurate? <laughs> there's, there's the heat and pressure involved in the nitromethane is kind of unlike anything that we see sustained. You know, a nitrous car has a nitrous promine has the highest peak pressure, but like Ben said, it it's only for a millisecond. You know, it's only for a couple of degrees. Um, you know, the nitro it just keeps keeps going and going and going. And so that puts a ton of heat into them too. Yeah, and from a power level, Joe, in some ways that's almost easier to deal with, right? Like it's more forgiving. But mm -hmm. when you have, say, one of those pro stock engines where you've got, you know, you've got to tune the engine to take advantage of that maximum cylinder pressure within a very narrow window. And if you miss it, if you're too early or too late, man, your mm -hmm. performance suffers, right? So you're trying to literally land on the tip of a needle there to capture all that cylinder pressure at exactly the right moment. Whereas with a fuel car, when it's the basically the same cylinder pressure from you know, top dead center to 40 after top dead center. Um, as far as making power, it's somewhat, it's somewhat more forgiving that way. Controlling it and not having it annihilate the rest of the engine, totally different story, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but in terms, in terms of it being somewhat forgiving, if you don't get, you know, maybe you didn't get the port 
just right or the valve job just right or you know you missed a few degrees on the camshaft one way or another there's such an excess of power there anyway most of it as you know is being turned into clutch dust for the first 200 feet i i feel like in some ways that's easier than trying to you know try try you know you look at pro stock the number one qualifier and the number 16 qualifier there's like a tenth and a half or something between the whole field so you just cannot miss anywhere on that car um, from from the driver's foot letting the clutch out all the way to the yeah. you know the wheelie bar at the back if any one thing is off you just don't get another chance at it you know and mm -hmm. the engine tuning is no different on those things they're real sensitive interesting i i was uh able to overhear a conversation with jimmy proc in bristol about cylinder pressure and it was uh we had good air and then we had bad air and everything else was, you know, mostly the same. And so it was, how do you deal with this situation? And he was like, you know, bad air up the pressures. And so all the different adjustments that they had to make to accomplish that on the fly, I think is what makes it interesting. And, you know, that's the competition of it all. Like who can do that and manage it and make it live and go down the racetrack, which is why it's, uh, it's awesome. All right, guys, as uh, Lake mentioned, we are starting to run short on time i know everybody's got uh, a couple of things they got to handle we do have a few other graphs and charts that i know you wanted to get into lake uh so why don't you just uh guide us through a couple of these different things and uh this is as related to uh billy and his particular area of expertise so why don't you walk us yeah through? that's the ugly one move that one yeah. <laughs> well, go back to the one that the, the, yeah, the guy for a second that, that's nice that's, that's where you want to be go back you for a second you want that one, we got to start there. So yes. we were talking about, you know, Dr. Mar Marburg earlier and what a great friend he is and everything. So this is an example of we're going in the Wayback Machine several years ago. Then Billy and I were working on uh, oils and break-in, flat tappet cams and stuff. That's actually the radius, the crown on a flat tappet lifter. Now, mm -hmm. move to the next one. Yep. So when we talk about a camshaft breaking in, <laughs> what do we see, Billy? No, I mean, the, it was amazing because it matched. That's a different width, so it looks like this one's not quite as pointed, but it actually is exactly the same radius. You know, you know, we joked about the old guys not always being right, but when they told us that, hey, the lifter and the camshaft lobe mate to the same radius when they break in, that the camshaft matches the lifter, I mean, we know today that was 100% right, that they match, they match, and they match almost exactly – when they get through, you can see the part on the very, very left of this graph where the line is squigglier on the third one. You can see that part of the camshaft's the original shape, but the rest of the camshaft face does match that lifter. Absolutely. You know, so just kind of fun stuff. I mean, some of those guys, I mean, the, the those guys were just amazing what they could do. And this is a system Mark Malberg did. You know, he he came over to comp and we talked about what we wanted to do. And he took a Zeiss profilometer and skidless system and made it with his software. And we built and took an old um, CMM, put it together. This was a beautiful system for measuring camshafts. But I mean, Lake and I measured everything. We measured bores on two stroke motorcycle, oh, yeah. go kart engines. You know, oh, yeah. We there was just about nothing that we wouldn't stick underneath there to look, hey, what, what this looks like. You see, surface vision isn't just for piston rings. No. It's important for piston rings. Actually, I'd say it's critical for piston rings. But surface finish isn't just for piston rings. Everything in the engine. That's one of those tools where, like, you know, they say when, you, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. You know, well, when you have a profilometer, <laughs> like, everything looks like something you want to measure. You know, like, I want to yeah. know how rough that is, you know. 
No, it's funny right. because it's it, it's like you know that these parts, you know, how they interact is all at the surface side. So if you want to know what's going on, you've got to know your surfaces because they're what you know. They're the only thing that gets to interact. You know, there's that nice little coating of oil between them, but even it, you know, has a certain layer as you put more and more load. And when you get into a mixed mixed condition, you know, then it's all about surface finish. You know, the oil is gone. You know, you know, I'm out of here. I mean, looking at surface finishes is like having a good microscope. You know what I mean? All of a sudden, we how many years did we have all these parts failures when you're like, mm, I don't know, must have been a bad batch of parts. You know, I mean, how many times have that been blamed for a failure? And it's simply the way we prepared the parts or the way, you know, we didn't check the parts or we didn't know to look for a specific thing. And so the more we get into surface finishes and start looking at things like that, the more we're preventing some of these failures from happening in the first place. And now it's no longer the mystery failures, you know. Right. And so many of the terms that we use, you know, have some, some, you know, RA tells like 1% of the story, you know, a lot of your, you know, some of these, these RPVs, RPK, you know, some of the different ones that we use, they don't do good with different frequencies. So they can lie to you. So Mark does great presentations on which each of the parameters, what does that mean? But when it comes to the end of the day, once you've, you know, you learn all the parameters, but until you see a lot of the plots, then you go, oh, kind of like seeing that plot. You know, we can look at the radius and think, be like, hey, look, these two go together, you know? like you know, yeah, That, that one looks like this. Okay, I get it now. <laughs> yeah, you just turn the sheet over and lay them aside, shine a glass. Hey, Mike, look. Yeah, they're the same. Mark does such a good job with his training videos. If you ever watch that digital, like that notepad series that yeah, he notepad does. Series. Awesome. He comes off so good at it because he just absolutely knows the information inside and out. And he's not reading off a cue card. He's not rehearsing. He's just, he's just talking about what he knows about and is passionate about. And man, I love watching his videos. He is so good at that. No, I mean, that was his, you know, he, he doesn't talk a lot about it. That was his dissertation like two or three decades ago when he was getting his PhD was on surface finish in automotive application, you know, diesel applications. But, you know, then he had a, you know, career, doing that for a major diesel OE. And then when he went out and did his own, it's not like he's having to think about this stuff or looking this stuff up. He knows that it'd be like you, you asking me about my grandson, you know what I mean? It's like, how many pictures do you want to see? Yeah. <laughs> well, we're so lucky to have him as kind of our, in our group, right? Yeah, We've got this group of guys who are all together that have a passion for performance and making things better and just can't leave things alone. And, it's great that Mark's one of us in that, in that regard. Oh, absolutely. He's in the club for sure. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Joe, did right, we Joe, need an hour. <laughs> give or take. Ben. Yeah. Oh, I said, did we give, we do anything interesting today? Did you pick yeah. up any nuggets on hidden horsepower today? Oh yeah. Well, I'm going to go start my own metrology business actually. <laughs> you guys are hey, and if you ever want to have a hard time with bad air and nitro, go and get Ashley Force's old A fuel car and get that thing out because Darian will tell you it would run different every every 50 feet of density altitude. That car was a different car. Wow. Well, that's, you know, the A fuel uh, thing is now going into the funny car realm mm -hmm. and people are trying to get them running and they got to start with the whole process again. And it's, mm -hmm. it makes you aware of how long it took to get them to where they are now, where they go down the track pretty easily the a yeah. fuel cars um 
it, it will be interesting to watch as the funny car guys go through that. And yeah, the, you know, race day, we can have a rainstorm come through. It can change everything and they still want to win. So you got to figure it out one way or another. You got to figure it out. And the same guys figure it out all the time. It's that Jimmy Prox and the Dickie Venables and the Dean Antonellis and a couple, you know, a couple others getting into the mix, but they have a very unique knowledge. No, and it, well, that's it, why it, the drag racers are the best weathermen I know. Yeah, I mean, one year. Yeah, they're way better than the guys on the news, right? Yeah, I guarantee man. you, Gary Stinnett is a better weatherman than anyone on the five o'clock news anywhere in the country. Yeah, they had a um, a cold front go through in Daytona one year at the twenty four Daytona, and it blew up like six or seven of the cars because they were tuned for one weather system. And all of a sudden, it gets thirty degrees colder in Daytona, blows up you know a third of the field. I've yeah. seen that before too. Uh, yeah. World of Outlaw World Finals. You yeah. know, they would hot lap the stuff in the afternoon, uh, and it's November, and so it can still be kind of warm in North Carolina during the day in November. But mm -hmm. at night, it was oh. dead cold. The density altitude changed fifteen hundred feet <laughs> in three hours. Wow, <laughs> that's going to be yeah. It was. It was absolute carnage. I remember out there, everyone was blowing up everything. But it was an extreme change. Yep. All right, Lake, final final thought. If there's something that we didn't get in that needs to get in this episode, of course, everybody knows they want to hear the audio only. They go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud. We've got a couple of great episodes coming. We've got a couple of great episodes up there. Of course, you guys are rocking the YouTube channel, which this is available there as as well but if there's anything we didn't get in if there's anything you know you want to put uh, ben or billy on the spot now is the time before we get on out of here now nah, i'm gonna be nice to him and say thank you guys for taking some time out of your day i know B billy's got a lot of stuff going on ben's getting ready to go to australia so everyone's busy but i i thank everybody for putting the time together and wanting to give back because this little nugget right when ben or when billy mentioned the ABA testing fallacy at the ARA a couple months ago, I was like, wait, this is a topic for hidden horsepower. I know it's heresy, but I think when you look at it and, and as both of them explained their experience and how it can be misleading, it's not wrong. You just got to look at it with the right perspective. And I think hopefully we were able to accomplish that today and maybe open some minds and on how to approach unlocking that hidden horsepower. Systems-based approaches. Yeah. Well, and, and yeah. that's great. Billy, anything you want to say to the audience out there? Like I, I, I obviously know that uh, the people who are the engine builders who are here already, like we know what they're looking for, right? They're looking for knowledge, but practical knowledge, like how can I put this in practice uh, with whatever I'm doing? Can you maybe no, just, just be real careful, you know, realize that, that, when you make changes that you've just got to re-optimize, you know, and try to, when you're, when you're trying something, if you have a, if you know why it should work before you try, it's going to give you the confidence to stick with it and rub on it and try to get it to go better. You know, if you know this part should do better because of this, whether it's a ring like Lake gives you this, you know, this better ring package, whether it's a home, whether it's a valve spring, whether it's a cylinder head, whether it's an intake manifold, whether it's a fuel Regardless of what you're doing, if you if you have a belief that this really should be better, it can give you that commitment to try to re-optimize and work around it. And I think that's all we're trying to tell people to do. Don't go in there and swap apart and be a little bit back 
and go, oh, that's junk, throw it away. Or you're going to, you know, you're going to have the wrong push rod 20 years later in your engine. Ben, you got anything you want to add to that? Yeah, just real quick. I would say I like that he used the word belief because we talk a lot around here about belief dictates mm -hmm. vision, right? So it's real easy to see what you wanted to see. If you go into a test already deciding what you want the answer to be, you will allow the data to steer your direction because mm. you really wanted that to be the right push rod or the right camshaft or whatever. So the only thing worse than no data is bad data, right? And so the biggest thing is just be careful that you're collecting good, accurate, solid data, and then take the emotions out of it and don't let your belief dictate your vision. Allow the data to speak to you and say, this is what the engine's telling me. It doesn't matter if I really wanted my special new cam lobe to be the right one, right? We have to allow yeah. the data to steer it and not our emotions. Absolutely. Amen. Yeah. Excellent. Gentlemen, thank you very much. I appreciate you, you Ben and Billy. Going to kick you guys out. We'll see you on the next one. Lake, you stay thank put. You. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Billy. Lake Speed Jr. Uh, obviously, this is an exercise in education for a lot of people, but it's also entertainment, right? I find my get in the middle, Lake. I find myself uh, like, I don't know if I'll ever be able to use this information, but I think I will <laughs> on the mic at the NHRA or certainly one of our Total Seal trackside tech talk speaking of which when will be the next so the next trackside tech talk is going to be at the u.s nationals the big go in, in indy but the neat thing is going to be we're going to kind of have a three-peat here like a three in a row so we're going to do indy we're going to do maple grove and charlotte and i'm not sure what ex exact order i know indy is the first one but we're yes. going to do those three races and they are consecutive so we'll give everybody you know in a wide swath of the country a good chance to come to an NHRA race, have a great time, see all this awesome uh, top fuel, see the pro stock, see all these great cars run, but get a chance to get some education as well because we're going to do three tech talks, three races in a row. Ought to be a lot of fun. Yes, Indy, Maple Grove, Charlotte, as the order it was last year, I assume it is the same this year. And I can tell you Maple Grove is going to be the biggest one. I can already sell, say from now on experience, that's pro stock country. They love it. They love stockers. They love everything up there. A bunch of engine builders up there at the Grove. Going to be great. Uh, Lake, thank you very much. This was uh, educational and awesome. I appreciate it. We'll see you on the next one. Thanks, sir. There he goes. Lake Speed Jr. I'm Joe Costello. Remember, guys, Hidden Horsepower, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud. It's about subscribing. Write a comment, write a review, all of those things. And if you're watching on YouTube as well, the same situation. We appreciate all of you. This was very educational. And uh, you're going to use this information not far from now. And so thank you very much. Appreciate all you guys. We'll see you on the next one. Hidden Horsepower, presented by Total Seal.